Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life, who do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we will be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We will be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we are talking to Dr. Lisa Larkin about sexual pain, especially as it impacts breast cancer survivors. Dr. Larkin is a board-certified internist practicing internal medicine and women's health. She is the president of Lisa Larkin MD and Associates, an independent multi-specialty practice direct primary care. Also, the founder and CEO of Ms. Medicine, LLC, a national membership organization for women health clinicians and a concierge women's health primary care network. She serves on the board of directors for the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and the board of trustees for the North American Menopause Society. Please enjoy our discussion with Dr. Lisa Larkin. Thank you, Lisa, for for joining us for this episode of this podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm happy to do it. I really appreciate you talking about uh, sexual pain as you have a a real passion for helping people in this regard. But before we start that conversation, I'd like to know why do you think it's important to ask everyone about their sexual health? Well, that's a pretty easy one for me to tell you about, Terry. It's because This is such an area that I have seen for 30 years in practice. I haven't been doing sexual medicine for 30 years, but which is just such a huge unmet need. And there's such a lack of awareness and understanding of both physicians, clinicians, and patients that there really are options for treatments that are effective. And we know that sexual health really is important for overall health. Sexual health is part of health. And it's been an area that's been neglected for way too long. Very good. I just want to ask everybody that because if we want to get one message out, it's at least ask. Now, let's turn our attention to the the subject of sexual pain. And I would like if you would, to take a few minutes to discuss uh, sexual pain as it specifically relates to vaginal dryness. Right. So not all sexual pain is due to vaginal dryness, but certainly the most prevalent condition that's associated with sexual pain in postmenopausal women is genitourinary syndrome of menopause, formerly known as vulvovaginal atrophy. And this is a condition that develops usually at a several years beyond that final menstrual period. And that's one of the reasons that clinicians don't ask about it. And patients don't often realize that it's associated with menopause, but in fact, it's related to menopause in that it is the persistently low levels of serum estradiol that are directly associated with 
the loss of elasticity and collagen in the vulvovaginal tissue and dryness, which leads to the whole host of uh, symptoms that women experience. In addition, it's associated with a change in the vaginal pH. And so there's a change in the vaginal microbiome. You lose the lactobacilli, which was present in the acidic premenopausal vagina. And now often women will become colonized with those types of bacteria from the rectum that are associated with urinary tract infections. And so we see not only are there symptoms related to dryness and pain with intercourse with genital urinary syndrome of menopause, but we often see recurrent urinary tract infections as a big problem as well. And I know that it's such a big problem in menopause could, could you talk about, you know, just numbers of, of menopausal women? Right. So uh, the numbers are high. I would love to tell you that it's 100%. It's not quite 100%, but it's somewhere between 70 and 85% of women will develop vulvovaginal atrophy or GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, six, eight, 10 years beyond that final menstrual period. And we know that from lots of studies, depending on the study that you look at, it's in that range. And in our cancer survivors, particularly our breast cancer survivors, the number's even higher than that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the cancer uh, aspect of this, because I know for you, that's a particular passion for cancer survivorship and, and screening for cancer, breast cancer specifically. Would you talk a little bit about GSM? in that context. So as you mentioned, I do do um, quite a bit of cancer survivorship in practice, clinical practice. In fact, I saw a breast cancer survivor today, and this was really the topic of discussion. So what we know is that breast cancer survivors often now, if they're hormone receptor positive tumors are on what's called extended adjuvant therapy, which is hormonal medication that suppress estrogen production or activity of estrogen. What we also know is that we are seeing more and more younger patients with breast cancer who often will have prophylactic oophorectomies, a removal of the ovaries, or are on medication that suppress ovarian function as well, or have earlier menopause related to chemotherapy. What we know is that younger women with abrupt menopause often have the worst symptoms. And then you add to that, they're on this extended adjuvant endocrine therapy. And what we see in our breast cancer survivors is often the most severe and disabling GSM. And, you know, there's lots of fear around treating GSM in these patients, patients are fearful, right? Because what they focus on is, you know, prevention of recurrence of their breast cancer. And many of them feel just happy to be done treatment or happy to be alive. And, you know, doctors don't ask the oncologists. We know from studies, even at uh, centers that are big cancer centers, a uh, disproportionately small number of patients are actually asked about their sexual health. Because again, the oncologists are really all about preventing the cancer from recurring and patients in that setting, they're not really focused on their sexual health. And then they're seeing their primary care provider who may not be asking about sexual health. And again, they're living their life just as survivors, just happy to be alive. And yet we know that they're really suffering. Uh, again, they have the most severe and difficult to treat GSM uh, in many cases, and they're concerned about hormones in terms of treating that because of their breast cancer. A lot of women, of course, with breast cancer, to them, the word estrogen is a four-letter word, and they've been taught this. I was just wondering, you know, in your 
approach and the way you would introduce this to patients if you got to that discussion, they said get a lot of pain. How would you discuss the idea of estrogen to a breast cancer survivor? I can use the discussion I had today. So the patient I had today was a 55-year-old woman who had Hodgkin's disease at 26, got mantle radiation, had breast cancer at 39, had bilateral mastectomies. She's now almost 20 years from that early stage breast cancer that she had. And she has been menopausal for nine years now. And over the last 24 months has had progressive GSM that has really impacted her relationship and is very upsetting to her and her husband. So the first thing we really talked talked about was what we talk about with all patients, breast cancer or non-breast cancer, which is non-hormonal moisturizers, lubricants, dilators, pelvic floor physical therapy. And she had been using a product already, one of the over-the-counter hyaluronic acid products. And she thought that that was a little bit helpful. She told me that she hadn't really experimented with any moisture, other moisturizers or any lubricants. And so we talked about that. And then we really talked, she did have some hypertonicity to her pelvic floor, really talked about the potential benefit of pelvic floor physical therapy. But I really- What do you mean by hypertonicity? Just- So it's the body's way of contracting those pelvic floor muscles. So when something hurts, the body is very protective. And this is an unconscious kind of reflex that these muscles become tight and patients, it's not conscious, really have a difficult time relaxing them, which adds to the problem of this painful intercourse. So it's a combination of the genitourinary syndrome of menopause and these tight pelvic floor muscles. And in that setting, dilator therapy or pelvic floor physical therapy is often a really important and very helpful component to treating breast cancer survivor patients. But I can tell you when I examined her today and I show all of my patients with a mirror, she was aghast at actually what she saw in terms of she didn't realize how atrophied she really looked. And I could show her with a Q-tip today exactly where she was tender. And she didn't really understand, or, you know, many women as, as she didn't, hadn't really taken a look based on her symptomatology today. And I will tell you, she's not on adjuvant endocrine therapy at this point, but just based on the severity of what I saw today, I said, we can continue to try moisturizers and lubricants and pelvic floor physical therapy. But I have to tell you, you're almost 20 years from your early stage breast cancer. You've had bilateral mastectomies. And I want to go through the data about local vaginal estrogen for you, because I think it's going to be the most important and the most beneficial thing we can do. And so the way that I talked to her about that is that there's a big difference between systemic hormone therapy that actually increases serum or blood levels of estradiol and local vaginal estrogen therapy, which doesn't because the dosing is so dramatically different. So depending on if you use, and I talked to her about using the four microgram estradiol gel cap, the brand name is Invexi, which is that a year of that is equivalent to about the amount of estrogen and a half of a birth control pill, right? It's really, really small. And at the same time, I talked to her about Intrarosa, which is the intravaginal DHEA is kind of another example. And we talked about nearly 20 years out, we have a local therapy that's really working 
largely local. Now I, I can't say hundred percent because certainly an atrophic and someone who's as atrophic as she is initially, at least we may see a very transient small spike in serum estradiol level. But again, there's no data from either the nurse's health study or the women's health study observational arm that local therapy alone is associated with any signal of cancer or heart disease or dementia or anything. And I think even the oncologists have really come around now that the dosing is so low that it's largely working locally. And then in our patients, someone like this woman, who's nearly 20 years out from her cancer, has a low risk of recurrence, that she's the perfect person that should be encouraged to use local vaginal estrogen and not be afraid of it. You bring up a great point. Somebody who is early stage, far from her initial uh, diagnosis. Can we go to the uh, consensus statement that you were a part of on GSM and breast cancer survivors? And there's a, a wonderful point in that this paper makes about looking at stage and and who's a real good candidate for this and who may not be as good a candidate. Would you comment on that? So I think this is really one of the important points, right? Which is, I think many internists, many oncologists, many gynecologists lump all patients that have a history of breast cancer into one basket and that they treat them exactly the same, which is no local vaginal estrogen, right? Because they had a hormone receptor positive tumor. The truth is we know that there's lots of individual variation in patients with breast cancer and they're not all the same. So they're not only different in terms of their stage of diagnosis, so stage one, two, three, four, but whether or not they're hormone receptor positive or hormone receptor negative, but also in terms of grade, right? We know that there's differences in the biology of individual breast cancer tumors. We also know that there's a big difference in patients who actually have DCIS, which there's debate if you call that stage zero breast cancer or really what I believe it is, which is not cancer, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, or even our hereditary cancer mutation carriers who haven't had breast cancer, but are worried they're at high risk of having breast cancer for women who have undergone prophylactic mastectomies and or oophorectomies. Those women are really very different. So those genetic carriers versus the patients with DCIS. And then we have all of these patients with different stages and different grades of breast cancer. And then you add to that differences in treatment. Some are on aromatase inhibitors, some are on tamoxifen, some are close to their initial diagnosis, some are much more remote. And all of these women are not the same. So I think where we tried to go in the consensus guideline is to help clinicians understand if you look at an individual patient and you believe that she, based on stage and grade and proximity to her diagnosis, is at relatively high risk of developing a recurrence, maybe those are the patients that you are much more cautious about and you work with non-hormonal therapies. But in your patients who are remote from their breast cancer, who are completed adjuvant therapy, who had very early stage disease or had DCIS, those are the perfect patients for local hormone therapy and really trying to, you know, do this personalized medicine where we're really being thoughtful. I mean, I can tell you an anecdotal story that was really, really heartbreaking, actually. So I have a relatively new patient who came to see me at age 61. She was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer at 49, had 10 years of adjuvant therapy, 
she was not sexually active for those 10 years. That was while she, her husband was alive. They were not sexually active at all because of pain. And she and her husband just was told that there really wasn't anything to do and that she was on adjuvant therapy and she couldn't use local therapies. Fast forward, her husband passed away. She's now about two years being a widow. And she came to see me to say, I'm dating. And really, is there anything you can do to help me? And I said, oh my gosh, there's lots we can do. Like, I promise you, we will like fix this. This will be okay. And she sobbed. And she said, you mean I spent the last 10 years of my husband's life not having sex with him because I didn't know there were options and nobody talked to me about this. And I feel terrible. And the fact that you're telling me that this is something that we can treat. And again, it goes back to the original question, right? Which is why ask and identify individuals who are suffering so much with issues in their sexuality. I think that that is fabulous that we have information like this, that we can get people to learn and present to people. But say you have somebody that has metastases, an advanced stage that may not be a good idea to give them, or they just say, Dr. Larkin, I hear what you're saying, but I just can't do estrogen. What are some of your non-hormonal options you like to go to? Right. That's a really good question. You're right. There are some patients, again, as you mentioned, who either have metastatic disease and they're really doing everything they can to extend their survival. And even though I still believe in those settings, local vaginal estrogen would be fine. They're not willing to try it. So we really are in the realm of non-hormonal options. I think one of the things that's very, very clear from some more recent Ms. Flash data is that moisturizers do have some benefits. No question. Moisturizers have benefit. And if we can show patients where to apply them, and that's one of the things that, again, is really important. I think showing patients their anatomy and where they can actually apply moisturizer so that they get the most benefit as opposed to just spreading it on the outside, you know, where it never gets delivered to that vulvovaginal tissue right at the introitus where they really need that can be very helpful. I also think lubricants, you know, uh, silicone-based lubricants, water-based lubricants. I prefer the silicone-based lubricants. Again, the patient that I saw today, I really was talking to her again about making sure that you apply the lubricant to the partner. I can tell you that I have dilators that I like. I actually really like the Millie dilator, and I actually recommend that to patients and have many patients using it. So that is a dilator that expands. And so patients, I think for most patients, it's more expensive than buying the graded dilator sets, but patients can control that and use that to inflate it to the size that's comfortable for them and can use one device to gradually over several weeks be very helpful. And then I think pelvic floor physical therapy is absolutely critical in the setting. There's lots of other things that we can talk about. There's some specific products over the counter. I mean, some hyaluronic acid products. So there's one product from Bonafide called Reverie, which many patients do actually find beneficial. In some circumstances, although not very often, although I know others of my colleagues use it more often, you can do compounded lidocaine cream that sometimes you can apply to the introitus that can help with pain as well and make things more comfortable. And then finally, you know, there's lots of people who are doing laser therapy. So the CO2 fractional laser therapy, which I can tell you from my own experience, I do have a laser myself. And I can tell you, I'm really 
really using it very, very infrequently now. And the reason for that is I just haven't found it as effective in the patient population like we're talking about, right? So in the patients who have a history of breast cancer and who have very severe GSM, oftentimes it's painful for me to even put the vaginal probe in. And so I will have them do local vaginal estrogen for a couple of weeks before the treatment. But the truth is they really need most of them local estrogen therapy, even with the laser therapy. And honestly, I think I can get just as much mileage out of local estrogen if I can get them to use it and pelvic floor physical therapy and dilators. And then there's a couple other things. So there's, I mentioned the intravaginal DHEA, the intrarosa, that's a non-estrogen. I will tell you, I use it and talk to patients about it the same way that I talk about estrogen. So I don't think that that specifically in my practice, I say that the local vaginal estrogen is not safe and the intrarosa is safe. I do not present them that way. I present them as interchangeable with different deliveries. So the intrarosa is daily, the local vaginal uh, suppositories are twice a week. But again, that is DHEA and not an estrogen. And then there's aspemaphine, which is an oral serum. And again, no data making it better in breast cancer survivors. There's a little bit of preclinical data, animal model data that maybe it's uh, negative at the breast. And so maybe that would be safer. But again, you can't really talk to patients about that in that way. But it is an option. And I know some of my colleagues are using it in that setting. In our last episode, we talked about other problems that people can have with their sex lives, including low desire, low arousal, and problems with climax. I know that sometimes after you've had pain for so long, it's hard to get back to things. And you know, you've, you've fixed the problem vaginally, but sometimes there's those mental issues, perhaps, that just is hard to get back to a, a full, satisfying sexual life. What, what do you do for that? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because the patient that I saw today, that was exactly her, right? Which is, she also really was talking to me about low desire and difficulty with orgasm. And the way that I typically approach this breast cancer survivor patient or, or when I see them is that I really focus on treating the GSM and the pain first and really getting them comfortable because again, anything that hurts is going to kill your libido, right? But many of these patients, just as you described, really still have persistent issues with desire and orgasm. Now in her case, she also had been started on an SSRI antidepressant and she definitely correlated some of her reduced desire and, and orgasm on starting the antidepressant, but her anxiety and when she was put on it was really pretty severe and she really was, or was very reluctant to dose or stopping, which can be helpful. So we talked about to treat her desire, which we can go through if you want. But the interesting thing that she brought up, and this is something that I really talked to my patients about, and she brought it up spontaneously, is that when she had her bilateral mastectomies, and she said, you know, I only had a small tumor in one breast, and they told me I didn't need to do both breasts, but she wanted to do both breasts, as I see in practice many times, women are fearful, right? And I had a bilateral mastectomy as well. She brought up, I 
did not think that my breasts were really part of my sexuality. And only now in hindsight, do I realize really they were. And I think that that's part of the issue as well. So there's lots of body image stuff. Then there's, you know, loss of the breasts in terms of sensation. And then there's obviously, you know, menopause and uh, the impact of hormone changes. And then we have the side effects of the medication. So it's really kind of teasing apart and trying to address all of those things. Now, as you know, I have a good friend and a colleague who's the best sexual medicine therapist that I believe that's out there, right? And I, I refer patients to Dr. Kingberg frequently because sometimes, again, that's really an important part of the puzzle as well. So again, once you treat the pain related to GSM, I think that it's teasing apart all of the other things that are impacting desire. Thank you. That's a a wonderful discussion on having sexual pain and especially addressing people with breast cancer. I really appreciated your time. And I think this is a lot of food for thought for our listeners. And thank you so much for taking thank this time so out. Thank you so much for, for having me. Of course. And you have a, a wonderful rest of your day. And, and thank, thank you. you again. Thank you for doing this, Terry. Thank you for joining our discussion with Dr. Lisa Larkin, regarding sexual pain. For a copy of the article discussed and an outline of today's discussion, please see the show notes. Also, if you are interested in seeing Dr. Larkin or a virtual consult, her office number is also in the show notes. Thank you.